A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome back to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including writers, filmmakers, musicians and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Lena Iris Victor, a Liberian British artist who works in painting, sculpture, photography, performance and installation to create works that reflect on her own identity amid broader themes, history and geopolitics, astrophysics and maths, ancient myths and belief systems to explore universal implications of blackness. Lena was born in 1987 to parents from Liberia in West Africa and grew up in London. She left to study in the US in her late teens, initially with the aim of working in theatre, but she switched disciplines first to film, which she studied at Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York, and then to photography at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Today, she lives between Naples in Italy and London. As soon as she began making works of art, Lena brought together a range of materials and disparate ideas. Among her earliest pieces, for instance, was Golden Ratio, a triptych inspired by pure mathematics, visualised with a host of abstract forms and shapes inspired by the theory of the Golden Ratio and the spiral diagram for the Fibonacci sequence. In those works, she used 24-karat gold leaf, applied through the process of water gilding. And pure gold has been a crucial material for Lena ever since. She's interested in its visual visual effects of course, but also in its historic significance and symbolic power, its ancient connections to spiritual transcendence and its role in African cultures for instance. She explored gold and symbolism perhaps most profoundly in her two series Materia Prima and Constellations, in which the only colour other than gold is black. Constellations are abstract canvases that teem with symbols, which, Lena says, draw again on mathematical principles and how the universe operates by pattern systems. She also likens these patterns to DNA structures, yet they also evoke textiles from a range of cultures. Again, this links to forms of information. As Lena puts it, it relates to how textile design is connected to how we, as civilizations and societies and cultures, record and transmit knowledge. In the Materia Prima works, Lena uses photographic images of herself against these black and gold patterns, with her face and upper body painted black. And you'll hear in our conversation how this idea of Materia Prima links with Lena's use of the colour black throughout her work. Over recent years, she's continued to push this balance of portraiture, linked to a host of art historical references, with rich subject matter in ambitious sequences of paintings, often displayed in dramatically coloured and atmospherically lit installations. Dark Continent is a 12-part series exploring the stereotyping and stigmatisation of Africa. A Haven, a Hell, a Dream Deferred is an 11-part body of work reflecting on Liberia's complex history and composed using the colours of the country's flag, blue, red and white, as well as black and gold of course and she builds on that series within the black fantastic a sequence created especially for and named after the hayward gallery's exhibition that opened in the summer of 2022 deepening the use of red and reflecting on a host of knowledge and belief systems from geography to botany and astrology 
And while in one work in this latest sequence the figure is absent, in the two others Lena is there at the heart of the image, a commanding, engaging and yet elusive presence. Though she long ago abandoned her theatrical ambitions, there's an undoubted interest in performance and the adoption of roles in Lena's work. And I began by asking her about the tension between this element and a very distinct concentration on image and objecthood in her work. How does she strike this complex balance? I think I definitely do series of works and I I have like works that are far more abstract and works that are, you know, figurative um, in terms of painting. And for me, it's always about trying to merge things that may seem disparate or symbologies that are from all over the world and trying to find like a common baseline where they all work together. With the figurative works, for example, they are portraits, they're not self-portraits, but they're portraits of myself in a performative sense. And for those works, the textiles I'm usually wearing are usually, you know, very colourful. And, and so what I do with the, with the figure is I always try to bring the colours into a particular colour field and then play around with the composition. And, you know, the works are like very dense, a lot of information, a lot of tactile relief on the works. I look at it almost like an equation. And how do you put things together that works in terms of it not being abrasive to the eye, but also is still very dense with information. And so the composition is what takes, you know, in terms of like the initial preliminary aspect of the work, the composition can take a very long time to see how it works like a puzzle, how it all fits together to make sure that even though with all of its complexity, there's still a level of, of it making sense visually. I wanted to explore that idea of self-portraiture and selfhood in the work because you're very clear that they are not Mm self-portraits, but you use your own body. Can you tell us about why it's important that you do use your own body and not models, for instance? Uh, So I studied photography out of college and I did photograph other people's subjects. I enjoy that, but there's something that's so immediate. There's a sense of like, I'm always present. There are other artists that speak about that, that in terms of, you know, especially female artists that use their own body. The fact that your presence also means something as well. The fact that you can do it at any time and that your form can take on multiple kind of meanings and and multiplicities kind of thing, you know. So for me, it's about performance. It's about more of the universal sense of like the the form rather than it being self-reflexive about myself or trying to explore aspects of myself or trying to, you know, show the audience or (laughs) delve into you know, aspects of self, like, for example, a Frida Kahlo would have done, you know, like for me, this is not what the work is about. So it's just my being present. It's very easy to do it that way. So there's, it's almost like a functional thing. But also from a more kind of performative aspect, there's kind of an interference that happens when you're trying to convey to somebody else what you're trying to, you know, achieve. I've never been a good director in that way. So for me, it's like I know exactly what I want to achieve and so I can and I can play endlessly with that as well so it's like it gives me a lot of time to get to what it is that I'm trying to achieve without like imposing it on somebody else to do you know one of the key aspects of many of the portraits is the use of black paint on your body I wonder if you could explain the use of that paint because it has all sorts of connotations Mm. both in terms of our historical terms and in cultural terms so can you explain why you do paint aspects of your often the face and other parts of the body black Um, I started doing that in 2015 it was very to me intuitive at the time I didn't really do all the due diligence in terms of like the historical significances it just felt 
very intuitively correct to do. However, obviously, I've done a lot of research since then. And, you know, blacking up, if you will, like that's what it's called, like, or doing blackface has, you know, all these kinds of deep and, and sometimes very painful histories. However, what I learned, especially in, in the southern states of America, obviously, where this was happening a lot, was that there was this also movement of black performers who were then blacking up as a retort, if you will, to the way that white people who would don blackface were ridiculing them. It was almost like turning it on its head and ridiculing them for their kind of stereotyping and and lack of you know worldliness and lack of, of understanding other people and other cultures. So there's a bit of that in it. But also for me, it's something that's also just about this idea of materia prima, right? So materia prima being first matter. And, and for me, it's akin to like, you know, the stuff of the universe, the dark matter in the universe that we don't even know really what it consists of, but it looks black to the eye. And so for me, like the beginning of everything was birthed from this idea of blackness, right? And I don't mean that in the racial sense, I mean that in the universal sense. So materia prima, this idea of black being the source and so for me, like applying that to the body is almost then taking that whole conversation to a whole other level beyond just the blacking up, which is obviously a very societally imperative conversation. But there are bigger conversations, also more macrocosmic conversations to be had. And there's a lot of that macro micro in your work, isn't there, in the sense that it seems to me that there are sort of all sorts of cosmologies on the one hand, there are very specific cultural references, mm -hmm. but there's also this tension, it seems to me, between myth and science. Mm. Tell me about that sort of balance that you're striking, because sometimes they're right next to each other in the work, as it were. Mm. I mean, these are things I'm just interested in. I just really, you know, mythology to me, like the way that we have told stories throughout time, the way that we have depicted the language we've used, you know, even you talk about the pre-verbal languages that exist that are those symbologies that are, are so frequently used in constellations, for example, they transcend borders and they transcend time and they transcend cultures. You know, the astrophysics is definitely not formal astrophysics in terms of like my understanding. I don't have, uh, I'm a layman when it comes to, you know, astrophysics, but I have a deep, I think just very intuitive understanding of the larger conversations that are happening within that field and how that can be kind of applied to art because you know we live in a world where everything is so compartmentalized and even when we went to school there was science and math and art and they were all very separate and not to be kind of you know interwoven because really what they're trying to do is try to explain what's going on around us right and, and empirically in the natural world what's going on around us or how we compute those things so yeah, for me, I think that it's like, it, it's almost a second nature to bring things together that seem disparate or seem that they don't belong together and have a, a larger conversation around them. For me, myth is, you know, our stories that we've told since the beginning of time, again, that explains our place here, explains our relationship with the world around us, explains our relationship with each other. So to me, there really is no delineation or definition that separates those two worlds. Um, I think they're both, at the end of the day, trying to achieve the same thing by different means. And it seems to me that at the heart of that conversation is one of your most crucial materials, but also sort of symbols in the work, which is gold. And of course, gold mm. has very specific references in terms of its use in contemporary society and historic society, but also it's a material from the universe, as it were. And that seems to me to yes. be a really interesting tension in the work. Yes, there's so many layers to conversations, like you said, about gold. There's the more kind of 
contemporary conversation about how we interact now with gold. And that's just mostly a very monetary conversation, very much just about wealth accretion and, you know, all the things that kind of go along with that. However, for me, and I think artists like Yves Klein spoke about the same thing, about the inherent spirituality of gold. And that's been lost in our society, you know, and in most of our society. I wouldn't say, for example, in India, it's not lost, you know, but like for Western cultures, that idea of gold being this, this um, conduit, if you will, like, like akin to this, what you would call a sun god or like, like the sun. Even Western cultures for a time would like, you know, place gold all through their cathedrals. I remember when I went to a cathedral in Toledo in, in Spain, and it was all like literally I've never seen so much gold in my life, like attached to a, a cathedral, you know, and and obviously this is all throughout Europe and Russia and other places. So we definitely have understood that gold was, in a sense, this kind of conduit between worlds. It was meant to elicit or speak about other worlds, i.e. heaven. Or you think about the Egyptians, for example, and they, the ancient Egyptians, and they would bury their dead with gold obviously not with the intention of it being excavated and being placed in museums. So, you know, that was, again, this conversation about the journey between worlds, that gold, I guess, was this kind of like transmutive type of material. So for me, there are many different conversations. There's that conversation. Obviously, there's the much bigger universal conversation about how gold was deposited on Earth, how much gold is on Earth right now, which is not very much. The astrophysicist Brian Cox, I think, when I watched a documentary a couple of years ago, said that I think there's about like four or five Olympic-sized swimming pools. That's it. That's ever been excavated. So basically, you're using a very scarce material, hence why it has the value it does. So yeah, there's that conversation too, the, the, the conversation of how gold was created in the universe and the, during the death of a star, a supernova, and all the elements kind of, the gold's one of the last um, materials to be created during that implosion process. And obviously it gets ricocheted and what we have is, you know, what's been kind of deposited on the earth. So for me, there's so many different interesting conversations to be had around gold that I think has kind of been lost in our contemporary culture. It also plays a really important role in the sort of physical appearance of your work and also so what the work does, it seems to me. that Yesterday I was looking at a work which is a new work called I Bargained With My Sins and Shed My Skins, which is this abstract piece actually. Mm -hmm. But it was really clear to me that the gold's sort of transmitting from the work. It's projecting out into our space. It's owning the space around it beyond the sort of rectangle that it's contained within. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that that happens in smaller ways and in different ways in all the work. Is that right? Sort of you want it to kind of have a kind of almost like a voice within the work I mean I think so there was when I first started working with gold I, I met one of Jim Hodge's assistant and we went to this foundry in Beacon and he was working on these large boulders and I think it was a gold boulder and he said something to me that really stuck in my head he said that when you are standing in front of pure gold is unlike anything else like you can't replicate it with fool's gold and we god knows how much fool's gold exists in the planet but he's like there's something very implicitly that, that happens in human beings when they witness real gold, um, which is, again, what, I guess what's linking to all these conversations I had before about when they would put them in their churches and cathedrals. It's like there's something that's very otherworldly and very deeply felt by people when they see it. And so I just want to be a person that can impart that feeling and that sentiment in a way through the work. And for me, gold is its own like light source. So it emits in a way that's just so, I mean, it's like there's nothing else like it. You can't really replicate it in any other way. So yeah, for me, it's just a very special material.
So let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I think I was probably at 13 or 14. I went on a school trip to the Tate Modern and I saw Rebecca Horn's work and I, I wrote it down because I forgot the name of it, Concert for Anarchy. And it was the suspended piano. And I you know at the time I wasn't even interested in visual arts per se. Like I was obviously doing more theatre and performing at the time. So I just never knew that art could exist in that way. It could be that, you know, it could be a found object or an existing object that can be transformed and then watching the whole process of it kind of disassembling and coming back together again, it was just magnificent. And I was like, wow, this is a, this is really, you know, blew my mind a bit. Yeah, I'm sure it did. It's almost like it throws it up its guts over to, you know, it's, it's extraordinary physical process, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so one of the things about that, of course, is that is that it opened up the possibility to you of a kind of a material language which was beyond the kind of obvious language of, of mm. art. And that seems to me to be something, of course, you want to employ paint, mm-hmm. but you're also, again, you know, we talked about gold, but it seems to me that you're constantly wanting to sort of involve different aspects of different materials and bring them together in a kind of collage way. Yes, I do. And materials that I don't think are very, you know, widely used, for example, the sculptures in the show with the volcanic stone. I mean, that's not something that you really find with sculptures, at least here. You find that in Mexico, but not here so much. So it did open up. It opened up many windows. And, you know, since then, obviously, there's so many other things and so many other artists that, that you know, work in that way where they bring together what you think are disparate materials to create something that's really unique and new. But but yes, you know, I've always tried to, and at least from my perspective, push my limits in terms of what I think can be brought together and, and, and played with from a material standpoint, from a relief standpoint, working on paper, working on canvas, and now obviously working with sculptures as well, and working also in making these like architectural kind of spaces as well. So for me, it's like, I just want to push my own limits of what I think I can do. And in terms of the sculptures... One of the things I'm struck by when I look at them is that they seem to me to be bodies, but I don't know how deliberately that is the case. Yeah, so I wanted them to definitely have a figurative uh, sense without them being explicitly figurative. The idea being that, you know, they're more just about like a human-like form that is recognisable, but at the same time can't be placed. That was definitely the intention with uh, the sculptures. And the volcanic rock, how do you source that? Again, you know, obviously you, you, the way that you source the gold, you work with water gilding, you're working with very specific mm-hmm. type of gold. Tell me about the volcanic yes. rock. So the volcanic rock is from Sicily. Um, so I work with a foundry in Carrara and we source that from, from Sicily. And it's not easy to source that, that material. I mean, like I said, this, this material, obviously volcanic rock is actually pretty abundant because it's from volcanic explosions. So you'll find it deposits all over the, the world in different locations. Another place you'll find a lot of volcanic rock is all over South America. And, you know, a lot of Mexican artists use volcanic rock. But in terms of Europe, the only place that we've found right now is Sicily. And it takes a very long time to, to get, um, like a very long time. <laughs> and and you can only get it, because unlike marble, because obviously this is a foundry that works with Carrara marble, so they can just like get huge blocks. Unlike marble, they have very specific, I guess, size limitations that they, they can cut to. So it's, it's you can't really make really big sculptures with volcanic stone as well. I don't know, it's because of the nature of, its, of it being so porous. And in, in that way, having a fragility in that way, maybe that's why. But there definitely is a very different kind of material to work with than marble. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Right now, I'm a little bit obsessed with Fausto Malati. 
and his seven sages and that whole series of work. I really like that a kind of, now that I've said that there's a sense of like understanding with the diviners, like that idea of like a figurative like form towering, you know. I love Sigmar Polk. I went to one of his retrospectives, I guess, at uh, Palazzo Grassi in 2017, was it, or 2018? Mm-hmm. And the, the series Axial Age, the the transparent black canvases, I just fell in love with those. I mean, they're um, amazing. Uh, I love Yves Klein, as you know, Majoro Blue, and, <laughs> and Louise Nevelson. I'm a big fan of Louise Nevelson as well. And there's a very important quote from Nevelson that's sort of part of the kind of foundation of your work in a way, isn't it? Yes. Yes. She says that black is the most aristocratic colour of all. When I read that, it just, you know, especially coming from an artist like herself and it's and it not having the racial connotation, because so much when you say that, especially as a black artist, it always gets attributed with you talking about having racial conversations. But what she's talking about is that the pureness of it and at the same time, the depth of it. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a color. I call it a value. It has so many layers within it. And people really overlook that so much. People think black is just like a very dense, mostly an art, unusable color. Most artists like are told not to use black in their work. So when you see artists like um, Pierre Soulage and Levelson and there's so many others that are dedicated to black and, and all the different opacities and hues. And once you put them together, you start to see everything where you don't see it if you just have like black in one area and then everything else is something else. When you when only work with black, you begin to see black in a very different way. And you realize it has literally like all the different color spectrum within it, even though, you know, from a scientific standpoint to say that's what white is, right? That has every single color. But for me, it's almost like I make my own kind of science. I say it's the reverse. And I say black contains everything. And it's like deeply saturated. It saturates everything. I totally understood what she said when she said that. It's an elevated color to me. Is that partly why you admire Rothko's Chapel in Houston so much? Again, it's it seems to me it's also about uh, environment, yes. but also about the works themselves. Yes, the works themselves I adore. But what really did stand out to me was the fact that you have a space that is built actually to house the works because so often we're just hanging paintings in a space that already exists, right? And you're making the work have to fit into the space. But to create a space where it's in tandem, actually it's simpatico, the architecture and the work to me is a beautiful concept and it's uh yeah it's really powerful and whenever you've displayed your work and right from the start really you've always thought about it not just as individual objects but as an environment with objects sort of occupying that space right yes so for me like I conceive space as a continuum of the work and I want people before they even engage in a close proximity to the works on the wall or however they're displayed the sculptures I want people to have like a feeling the minute they enter the space right? Like the the initial just being in there, there's a sense, and then you engage with the work. So it kind of creates a mood with which then you can encounter the work. I wanted to ask also, while we're talking about historic artists, about Cozzarelli's Libyan Sibyl in the cathedral in Siena, which has been a really crucial work, particularly in in one particular body of work, Mm -hmm. but you've used it very directly in the work, haven't you? Yeah, so in the series, A Hail and a Hell, A Dream Deferred, that series was all about America's relationship in founding of Liberia in West Africa, which is where my parents are from. I'm Liberian. So it was during the New Orleans city's tricentennial. And I wanted to make works that also spoke to 
Neurolinian history specifically, as well as America's general hand in the founding of Liberia. The Libyan Sibyl became kind of like conduit or like a transmuting figure throughout the work because the Libyan Sibyl was a prophetess of ill-fated futures. And so obviously from a you know, classical sense and mythological sense, that was her, her story. However, during the abolition of slavery, that whole story was exhumed, you know. And so if you go to like the High Museum of Art in uh, the States or you go to the MoMA in many places, they have these Libyan sibyls, like sculptures of this like very forlorn, usually laying down her head in her hand figure. And because she's basically the arbiter of bad news. And so the abolitionists use that figure. They even likened it to Sojourner Truth, for example, as what would befall the African peoples. They used it almost, you know, retroactively as the ill-fated, you know, futures that would befall the African people once they were sent to America during the transatlantic slave trade. So because we're dealing with all of that history of the slave trade and then this repatriation of black people to West Africa... I thought that that would be a great, you know, historical figure to use because it has so much reference also to classical history and classical art, as well as contemporary stories that were happening in the Deep South in America as well. And wonderfully in that same series, you sort of have elements very directly drawn from West African photographers, don't you? Yeah. Tell us about that, because with the particularly Seydou Keita's particular image, and you pick up not just on poses, but also on that language of backdrops. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I've always loved Seydou Keita. I, I discovered his work when I was in college and uh, I fell in love. In, and this is before I even really understood about, you know, West African studio photography and like Malik Sidibe and, and everybody else um, that was producing in that way. But for me, like again, it comes back to this like, pulling from things that don't seem to make sense and bringing them together. And because they are figurative images for the most part in that series, it makes absolute sense to also draw from, you know, West African studio photography where the figure is so imperative. And also it really recontextualized the Western view of Africa, right? When you saw those images, the fashion, the the pomp, the circumstance, like the regality And I just wanted to impart some of those same notes into the work as well. And of course, you as the model, your figures have flowers in their hand. And that's a a lovely direct reference, I thought, to Keita. Yeah, to Keita and also to Afili. So if you remember the the series Within Reach in 2003 in the Venice Biennale that Mm. Afili presented, the flowers in their hands are actually drawn from that series, from the Within Reach series. So now that we're in a show together, it's like, so to me, it's just kismet. It's like, wow, because, you know, I've, I've always been so inspired by his work. That's really interesting. Of course, one of the interesting things about, I mean, it's, it's very neatly segued into our next question, which is about contemporary artists that you admire. Um, but one of the interesting things about Ophelia, I think, is, is about his sort of very programmatic or uh, symbolic use of colour. And it seems to me that's very present mm. in your work, too. Yes. I wanted to ask particularly about the way sometimes, in a way, the colour comes first and then you have to form the compositions from those colours. And how easy is that? Because obviously, you're not just standing there and able to grab it other colors you're using colors mm. as kind of almost as a ready-made and yes. therefore you have to bring them into play together tell me about that process i mean i think a restricted palette gives you far more freedom in many ways i think if you have too many options to pick from especially with the nature of my work because it is already so busy and dense it would just be i think messy you know like so for me it's about like grounding in a particular color and because colors have so much meaning to me you know like the blue that i was using obviously people say klein i say majoral blue 
obviously the black restricting basically myself to only two colors or three colors or four colors actually makes the puzzle part of it much easier because then it's like okay well where does this color belong where does that color belong in the midst of all these you know reliefs and and symbols and dense kind of imagery where do these colors belong it actually grounds the image and obviously Ophelia in that Within Reach series used colours that were related to Pan-Africanism, for instance. Yes. And you, yes. In, a, in a way, you've related to that sort of Pan-Africanist ideal, but actually zoned in more on Liberia, obviously, as you say, with your background. But it's such an interesting story why the colours are the colours they are. The, what I was really trying to depict in this series is the fact that there's so much uh, similarities between America, especially the South, and about Liberia. Basically, Liberia was a sister state, you know, to the states. And everything was based on America. So you had the American flag with one star. You had Monrovia was named after President Monroe. All the different uh, districts and towns and cities were named after states and towns in America. It literally was a plantation society as well. So they architecturally built what looked like a plantation so you really were just picking up America and placing it in West Africa as if there were some kind of tabula rasa. So I really wanted to show that kinship between the two. And the best way to do that is, you know, the colors of America are the colors of Liberia. And so that's why within that series of work, it was all red, white, blue, obviously black, because there were earlier renditions of the Liberian flag that contained black and also gold as well. So... That was just, the, the, to me, the perfect way to visually show that relationship of how similar these two places are, even though most people have no idea of Liberian history and definitely have no idea of the fact that America founded Liberia and basically superimposed itself into West Africa. Right, And it's, it seems to me that what you're trying to do then is to sort of create a kind of different story within a wider project which is happening all over the world right now, which is about colonialism and decolonialism. And mm. it seems to me that Liberia gives you access to kind of explore that very urgent topic, but through a very personal lens. Very personal, but also I really wanted to show or, or at least like, you know, impart that this is not a, a this is the oppressor, this is the victim story, right? Because just like everything in history, it's very messy and the lines can be very blurred. So what I wanted to also speak to was the fact that, yes, of course, we can speak about, you know, Americans, white slave owners as being the oppressor, as being the aggressor. But what happened in Liberia was that once these freed black slaves or those who were, you know, children of these white slave owners moved to Liberia, they kind of created the same system there that oppressed the indigenous peoples. So at what point does the victim become the oppressor, the oppressor, the victim, so on and so forth. So I wanted to also show a little bit about how messy the whole thing is, because it's not so black and white the way we want to always see it, especially when we're having these conversations of colonialism. For example, people don't ever want to address the fact that Africans partook in the enslavement of their own people in many ways, because they allowed them to be taken. They allowed them to, a lot of them were sold. Uh, you think about Angola, what's happening, what's happening in Angola, a lot of them were actually sold into slavery, then they were shipped to the States or to, you know, South Americas. So there's never this black and white, very clean issue of the aggressor and the, and the, and the victim, especially when you're talking about these numbers of people being sold into slavery. There's never this, this sense of, of it just being a, this is the good guy, this is the bad guy, you know, in, in these kind of conversations. 
In terms of the way that you use the material around Liberia, obviously there are very specific maps that you used. And even when you're looking at the work, when you're looking at, for instance, the floral elements, you may be looking at more improvised elements. Those two are very directly related to historic depictions of foliage and things like that, right? Yes. For example, when I look at the backdrop of Seydoukita's work, I see floral motifs, right? So those things like are definitely within the work. I use a lot of fronds, a lot of botanical aspects, especially, for example, in the series like Dark Continent. But they make their way into all the works, even if they don't necessarily make sense in terms of it being like a space that would have those types of fronds and plantation within it. But just because there's always that call to the natural world, right? There's always that call to it, whether it's in a more ominous or kind of like unknown way with the Dark Continent series or whether in the new works, for example, the new triptych, they're imposed within there, but it's, it's not with this, within an idea of a sense of place. It's just, they are just part of the, of the conversation around the natural world, you know, but for me, that's always a through line as well. Even in Constellations, that if you look closely, you'll see that as well. So there's definitely that through line with the work. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The free app offers access to more than 80 cultural organisations through a single download, ranging from Falmouth Art Gallery to Aberdeen Art Gallery in the UK, and from Anchorage Museum to New York's Governor's Island in the US. As you've heard, Lena is in the Haywood Gallery's exhibition in The Black Fantastic, and if you download Bloomberg Connects, you can explore the show further on the interactive guide to the Haywood. There, you can hear audio commentaries on Lena and the 10 other artists in the exhibition by its curator, Eschen and listen to a discussion between Eschen and the author Marlon James, reflecting on the ideas behind In the Black Fantastic. The guide also has sections on past and forthcoming exhibitions at the Haywood Gallery. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Let's talk about your studio. I wanted to ask you very specifically about this because in New York you had a studio where you had a kind of white studio and a blue studio, so a kind of making studio and a kind of showing studio. Tell me about that. So, yeah, I've always had this idea of, like I said, wanting to create a space that is evocative, that brings a, a certain mood. And it's really sad that studios close now because obviously the white room was very clinical, you know, it's very studio-esque. And then you enter into this blue room and and all of the periphery of the ceiling was gilded as well. And there was very low lighting in there and very little daylight got into there. So basically it was a sense of being subsumed when you enter, like it, the frequency of the room changes and the frequency of sound changes, like everything changes, even though you're literally just right next door to each other. So it just, it definitely set a tone with which then I wanted to like display these works that I was obviously like, that that were just kind of in interim on the way somewhere else or coming back, whatever, a, a space that people can have a, a really quiet moment and engage with the work. So yeah, for me, it's always important to have that kind of a space when you are showing work is even if it's in your studio like a space that is meditative right and I saw a photograph of the studio and it seemed like you had and I think you called it a mood board but effectively lots of works of art by other people on the walls which acted as a kind of source of inspiration yes the wall that you're talking about was what I was looking at when I was making a haven a hell a dream deferred so there was so much stuff. I mean, just like all kinds of images that, again, seemed kind of don't necessarily make sense, but they just made sense to me. And it was, just, again, about creating a mood. It wasn't so much about picking things from the works or anything. It just was 
What do I want to be looking at? And what do I want to be thinking about? How do I want my mind to float whilst I'm working on these? And these are the visual kind of cues that I was inspired by at that time. Let's talk about museums. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Probably Tate Modern. To this day, I mean, there's so much to see and it just keeps growing. So for me, Tate Modern would probably be the place I I go back to the most. You grew up effectively in London for for quite a while, didn't you? Yes. Um, But you've lived outside of London for a lot of the time too. So returning to Tate Modern, does it return you to those kind of early experiences with art in a way, sort of re-triggering that excitement, if you like? Yes. I mean, that was the first place, like I said, that I had this, you know, this uh, interaction with Rebecca Horan's work and, and realizing the scope and the breadth of what art could possibly be. And, and so whenever I go there, I usually find that there are still, you know, obviously they have their permanent artist rooms and spaces and then they have their evolving exhibitions. But I always have this sense when I go there, maybe it is this sense. I mean, I didn't even think about that, about like this first encounter, but I always feel like I encounter something that at least something, one thing that really just blows my mind. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I don't know if it's a cultural experience, but it has cultural aspects. So you know, continuing on from what we discussed before about my growing up here, I went to a school in Kingston. It was an international school and it was a boarding school. And this is by choice. I begged my parents to go. I did, they didn't force me to boarding school. But by the time I was 10, I was in boarding school until I was 17. And I was living with girls from about 20 something other countries. So that to me was a really, you know, obviously when you're so young, you don't even think about how unreal that is and how most people don't have that kind of experience of, you know, growing up with people from Saudi and from Japan and from Korea and from Mexico. But that was my experience. And and we were you know, like sisters. We lived together all the time for the whole term. So that to me really, I think, has clarified my worldview in many ways and made me understand how things can be interconnected, how people and cultures can be interconnected, and also just how to live well with other people, you know, from all over the world and and not have these kind of stereotypes and assumptions and preconceptions. So that was something that was very prescient from a very early age about this idea of this merging, melding of culture, melding of nationalities. I wondered also if that gave you the sort of taste for experiencing other places as as a source of kind of disruption almost in your work because I know you've spoken about how moving to New York was a massive disruptor you're in Naples at the moment and I know you that was a very deliberate conscious decision to go there and seek out different artistic forms for Mm -hmm. instance tell me about that sort of disruptive nature of travel or or place so for me I like to be uncomfortable at least initially because it inspires things that you being comfortable can't do so you know I was 17 when I moved to New York I guess by some measures that's young and I just was obsessed with New York. And now I can't stand New York. So it's, you know, it goes, it goes back and forth. But, um, but I was really obsessed with it. And I just knew it had something for me. And I knew that it, like, I could at least like stretch and conceive of a new life kind of, you know, there and, and build myself up. And obviously you're young, so you don't really know what you're going to become. So my formative years in New York were very tumultuous. It's like trying to figure out who you are in this crazy, you know, urban environment But yeah, to me, it's just very important to place yourself or especially when you start to become redundant or things start to feel redundant or repetitive to kind of jerk yourself out of something and just throw yourself into something else. And usually for me, that's just like leaving a country (laughs) and just going somewhere else, um, whether that's through travel or literally moving. But for me with New York, I just knew it was done in 2020 when I left. I just knew it was done and I didn't speak any Italian, but I 
decided that Italy would be the next place for me to explore. And obviously from an art perspective, I mean, it's like you can't get better than and being here but Naples also is a little bit you know when you when you tell people you move to Italy and you move to Naples it definitely has a certain preconception again and like like especially you talk about the north and like people living in Milan and and even for, you know north of Rome Naples does have a certain kind of connotation in Italy of like of being less cultured in a way and it's funny to me because it's like I like places that don't reveal themselves immediately you know and Naples it has this like really somewhat dark but really fascinating history and and even contemporaneously it's very interesting too so I just thought Naples would be fun to be in and so this is where I ended up and we'll see how long it lasts. And I know you went there sort of partly to look at ceramics has the volcanic rock sort of supplanted the ceramics or is there ceramic work going on as well? No, the first time I came to Naples, because I'm in Sorrento, which is just an hour south of, of Naples. The first time I came here was to see a Gioponti building. It was 2019. It was right after the Venice Biennale. I just took a train from Venice uh, and I came here with a friend to stay at a very particular place that Gioponti designed here. And I just fell in love with it. And, uh, you know, it's the perfect mix to me of like the proximity to Naples and Rome to Carrara even is like a six hour drive everything in Italy is like you know so you can get there so easily but also just you know the lifestyle here is just a different pace of life and it it almost feels like it's really weird coming from London where everything was so busy and and intense and the exhibitions opening and all the you know rip and roll around that and coming here where nobody knows anything about you nobody cares like it's like you literally just one other tourist and that's it you know it's like I like that that sense of like anonymity and almost like you have another life somewhere else. Which writers or poets do you return to? Junichiro Tanizaki in Praise of Shadows. That's a book I always return to. Very short book, but in parts of it, you know, he discusses like the like wabi-sabi, right? And like how time transforms things, how it adds things as, as well as takes things away, but it adds value in many ways, in ways that are not, I guess, in our cultures seem to be things that are valuable but it adds a value when you when, over time when things transform but also you spoke about gold you know in Japan there's also this relationship with gold in a much more muted way like kintsukuri how they fix their broken crockery or pots and stuff with gold and stuff so but he spoke about gold being in daylight or natural light very gaudy that gold is supposed to be viewed by candlelight Right. And and that to me is something that really stuck out when I read the book the first time. And it changed my whole perspective. I was reading that whilst I was building my studio in New York, the first one. And that's why the blue room was so dimly lit, because it's like the gold has to be its own light source, has to emit itself. You know, poets are really a strange one. I'm sure people won't, be, won't expect this, but I, I've always had this like deep fascination with Sylvia Plath. And when I was very young, I did a whole like uh, paper and stuff on her work and especially Ariel. And to this day, I still recite some of her poems. I just remembered them. So like Lady Lazarus or Fever, 103 Degrees, like those kind of poems. I adore her her voice. Her voice is really the way that she expresses herself. I adore. It's that extraordinary economy of language as well, isn't it? It's that, that precision, which I've always... Yes, like it cuts like a knife. <laughs> Absolutely. <yeah. laughs> I wanted to ask you about Langston Hughes because the a dream deferred element of that title obviously is is sort of directly related to his poem Harlem I imagine yes I mean for me I'm always trying to when I'm title works so titling to me is really important 
I always want to reference people that I think the energy of their work, you know, has inspired the work that's being produced, for example. So even with the autograph show in 2019, it's a William Blake poem, Auguries of Innocence, you know, so it's uh, Some Are Born to Endless Night, and then it's called Dark Matter. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I just always reference writers, poets, uh, depending on the body of work, that I think there's some kind of, you know, um, relationship with the work that's being created. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? Uh, contemporarily, I listen to like artists right now. Like I love Rosalia's new album. I listen to Labyrinth. I listen to Alice Coltrane. I listen to Thelonious Monk, Ramaz Davis. Those are like more jazz, uh, you know, rock. But, but yeah, I have a very broad spectrum. It literally is about a feeling. Like sometimes I'll just listen to nothing but 90s R&B. Like it just takes me back to my childhood. And that's what I'll be playing in my, in my studio. So yeah, it just depends on, on like the, the vibe, what I'm feeling in the moment. I ask this of a lot of people because I'm really conscious of it with you in that your work, it seems to me, must have very different modes of working. There must be very detailed work in which you need to very, very carefully concentrate and then sort of broader brush. So do you choose different music to accompany the different elements of the work? You know, so much of my work is spent like me hunched over a table with like a tiny plastic, very thin needle bottle, like doing all this different like detail work. And so I'm not even honestly, something I work in absolute silence because I find like, no matter what I'm listening to, my mind is not really listening to it. It's just like wandering, especially when you get to just very practical work. The music doesn't inform the work. And sometimes like even being in silence is better because it's just the, the train of thought that's happening, you know, in those moments when it's not decision making. You know, there's a period when you're, when you're making decisions in a painting, there's a period where you're just executing. And when you're executing, that's when your mind just wanders. And so sometimes even silence is the best way, you know. What other media influence your work? Hmm. So film. I went to college, Sarah Lawrence, and I ended up majoring in film, um, which is not what they, they do. But I just took all these film courses and I took a really amazing course with uh, the late, great Gilberto Perez. And I, when, I, when I left college, I wanted to do film. That's what I wanted to, to work with. And, I, and so I remember watching like Carl Dreyer's Passion of Joan Arc, right? Or Antonioni's La Ventura, Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. All these movies really inspire. And I still watch these movies to this day. I just watched all of them recently. That's why they come to mind. So yes, film definitely inspires my work. And it's definitely something that I want to get back into or, or start to dabble back into because it definitely was what I wanted to do initially. And then architecture is a very big inspiration for me as well. And I just wanted to return to film for a moment. Carl Dreyer's work that you mentioned mm. has an extraordinary relationship, of course, with portraiture because those remarkable close-ups, it's so yeah, intense, it's isn't it? And um, I wondered, would you say it's sort of directly affected the way that you work or is it more like a kind of a basis or a sort of foundation for ways of thinking around the work? I mean, I wouldn't say I've consciously taken things, but, you know, for example, like Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers, right? Those reds. Mm. Like for me, I think that I'm going to be drawing very explicitly from that that work sometime soon. But with Joan of Arc, I mean, you know, the first time I watched that film, we watched it in the theatre at school, obviously, and the technician forgot to put the sound on. So we watched it in absolute silence. But actually, I loved it even more in silence than I did with the score. But yes, all those really tight camera angles and pans that are really, you know, 
they shake you to your core. It's very terrifying in many ways, right? Yes, I mean, I'm sure like in an unconscious way, those things have, have inspired the work, but, but I wouldn't say explicitly, no. I wanted to ask you about dance as well, because I was really intrigued that Martha Graham and Pina Bausch influenced some of the movement that's sort of implicit in the static photography that you use. Yes, yes. So, you know, the form and like, especially when you look at like Dark Continent series works, which are far more active, the form is far more active in those works. I I mean, again, I don't know if there's this like explicit, like I'm drawing from Pina Bausch or I'm drawing from Merce Cunningham or Martha Graham, but... I definitely look at their work all the time. So there has to be some kind of, you know, relationship, but it's not something that I can say is probably an explicit one. Right. But again, it's that relates to that sort of sense that you you began your sort of creative life, as it were, thinking about performance. And it seems to me there are all sorts of ways in which performance seeps into the work, even if you're not making performance pieces for instance yes and and to be fair I'm actually working on one of my first performance pieces now so like live performance pieces like I I want to go into that realm furthermore than I do with performative portraits you know that's what they've been up until now it's what again it's what I grew up doing I grew up on the stage and to me it's just like a, a natural conversation to place myself in the work again like we were discussing um in that performative way and then now to go further into performance works in the more traditional sense. Yeah, because it's it's just what I've always been interested in, in doing and what I've always done from the beginning as well. And you mentioned architecture. The, the way that architecture, it seems to me, is present in the work comes in multiple forms. We talked about the kind of just the setting, the kind of mood that's created by colour and things like that. But you've also created mm-hmm. sort of freestanding screens through which the work can be conceived, can't you? Yeah. I mean, again, what like, you know, the idea of space, like informing the work and vice versa and this kind of like circular conversation, I think that I would like ideally to have. And I don't think I've achieved it yet in terms of like really knowing that there's like a there's a space that is completely sympathetical with the work. Right. Like you're always working with an existing space. So architecture for me, you know, when it's successful, it sets an entire tone for your life. And I don't think people understand that because we live in buildings, you know, like we live in these things. Like, And yeah, you can have architecture that's really bad and, and actually makes you feel bad. Like, and you have like these high rise, tiny, you know, cube apartments in New York and even in London and they don't make you feel good, you know? So I think architecture is a very emotional thing. And then to have something existing within that space that is in conversation with that already emotive space uh, just to me is like a visceral, a highly visceral experience that you can allow or impart to an audience. For example, with the screens, that was made originally for Armory in 2018. And it was, again, to like kind of break this idea of the art fair, you know, this like white wall, like booth after booth after booth. Like, I'm not a huge fan of art fairs. So if you're going to do it, you do it like in a way that's disruptive. For example, what we did was we removed walls. So we removed the ability for you to hang work so that you essentially you're as a gallery, you're losing money in the, in the more, and that's, it's, and it's just a money-making venture, right? When you do art fairs, that's all it is. It's a money-making venture. So um, how did the gallery react so, to that? Um, no, they were totally down for it. That's why we did it. You know, right. like let's remove some walls and let's really create this like, this thing that from afar looks like a jewel box, right? Because it has all these gold works inside and it has this like lattice, like they were based on historically Liberian fishermen nets. Um, So you have these like, you know, lattice-like forms on these screens so you can kind of see what's going on, but you can't get a full read of it. And and so, yeah, it's just like, it was just almost like a playing around a bit. Like let's let's just play around with the fair. (laughs) 
Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Yes, I usually meditate, but I've been very undisciplined um, recently. It's so crazy with the show like the last couple of months, so I haven't kept it up. But I usually am very uh, disciplined about meditating every morning before I start the day. Right. Do you do that when you get to the studio or before you get to the studio, if you like? Is no, it first that? thing in the morning. Right. First thing in the morning. It's like sets the entire tone of the day. Right. And in those moments of meditation, I know there are different forms of meditation, but do you completely deliver yourself from the work, cut yourself off from it? Or are you thinking about the work through meditation? I mean, I think I think this is almost impossible to not, you know, because, the, you know, the monkey mind, like it wants to return to daily things, right? It wants to return to like what you have to do. So even though you can have these moments, that's what I think meditation essentially is just these moments of like a blank slate, but there's just most of it is just you trying to control all those thoughts you're having or trying to stop them from coming. And in the process, yes. But you have huge breakthroughs too. It's like, you know, I think the breakthroughs happen in meditation or like when I'm in the shower, it's weird places like when you start thinking about something in a different way or like a spark happens. And for me, doing meditation is, is definitely a moment where that can happen. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Mm-hmm. So... I've never seen the sculpture, the Annunciation that Ophelia did in person at the Hayward show. Ah. Um, I've never seen it in person. I've only seen it like reproductions and images. And seeing it in person, I actually fell in love with it. I absolutely fell in love with it. So I was like, if you ask me that today, I mean, I might change my mind. I'm very mercurial. But, but, but for today, I'd say that would be a, a, a sculpture I'd love to live with. Very often the way that Chris conceives of historic and religious references, mm. he problematizes. I mean, it, it, arguably, it's a very violent image, right? Yes. I think a lot of people don't like that work. No, I know a lot of people don't like that work. I've read a lot of people <laughs> that don't like that work for whatever reason. And it's, and it's interesting to me that he made it in 2006 and he hasn't really made many sculptures since then definitely very few if he has and yeah for me it is a very like visceral violent type of image but at the same time it has the same hypersexuality that so much of his work has as well so it just crosses all these different boundaries of extremes of things that I think are can get under people's skin you know which is what makes it successful in my view and lastly what's art for to communicate I think that's what art is for I think art is for allowing people to transcend their mundane lives, you know, and this is for all of us, to think in a different way, to see the world in a different way, to open yourself up to maybe conversations or ideas that you wouldn't otherwise have in these encounters that you have. But mostly it's just a form of communication. And it's a very personal one, you know. It's like when you stand in front of a piece of art, it's just you and that work. Um, with the idea of the artist behind it there's what the artist intended there's what the artwork does and then there's what you perceive of it and it's unique for every single person so it's this beautiful communication that is completely personal and subjective lena thank you so much thank you it's been a pleasure In the Black Fantastic is at the Hayward Gallery in London until the 18th of September. And Rite of Passage, Lena Iris-Victor with César, Louise Bourgeois, Louise Nevelson and Eve Klein is at LGDR in London until the 17th of September.
And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues, which is back in September. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram course. Production, editing and sound design on a brush with are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentall. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a huge thank you to Lena Iris-Victor. See you next week for a brush with Sadie Char. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.